Hello, marketing friends. On today's interview, I'm talking to someone that most would define as an icon in our industry. Rashad Tabakawala is joining me. Longtime veteran of the Publicis Group in Chicago, Rashad started his career at Leo Burnett and ended it as the chief growth officer for all of the Publicis organizations serving 80,000 employees worldwide. I asked Rashad on the show to talk about his latest venture, a book titled Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. But as I prepared for our discussion, I quickly realized that Rashad's wealth of knowledge could have filled our entire season. It was a real challenge to figure out how to spend our hour. Rashad's candid, off-the-cuff style makes him easy to listen to. No doubt you'll want more after this interview is done, and I do encourage you to look him up. His focus is on next-generation marketing enabled by new technologies and changing expectations of people, so naturally his subject matter does not disappoint. Today, Rashad serves as a board member and advisor to a range of startups and venture capitalist firms. His time is precious and he treats it that way. He told me no single organization may hire him for more than four days a year, so to get a full hour of one-on-one time to ask him my questions was a real honor. I hope I did it justice as we cover topics like agency culture, change, leadership, and more. Have a listen to one of our industry's greats, Rashad Tabakawala. Well, Rashad, why don't we get started by having you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background. I'd love for you to share with our audience kind of how you got started in the agency world and Chicago market and how your career grew from there. I sort of geeked out when I looked at your profile on LinkedIn. So starting as almost like an account service guy, moving to take over some of the most, the biggest interactive agencies in the world, and then become the chief growth officer on a global scale. It's an amazing trajectory. And I was just hoping you could tell us a little bit about some of those pivotal transitions in your career when you were stepping into these major leadership roles, sort of what that felt like and how it fueled your growth. So there were about four or five key developments. First was I got to get this job. And in those days, it was really hard, as hard as it is today, if you are an immigrant without a green card. And in 1982, it was particularly hard because the University of Chicago, where I went to as a business school, had only two Indian students graduating. This past year, they had 48 Indian students graduating. So they've now set it up so that they make sure that they look after the Indian students. In those days, we were the crazy people. (laughs) Or they look after now the students from abroad. So luckily, I got the job. And the reason I got the job was because of an essay that I had written. And the essay was, it is important for you to think about the exact opposite of what you believe. And literally, it was that essay that helped me get into the company. And so in my book, I talk about that essay because I still continue to think sometimes for the exact opposite of what I believe, just to make sure I know what the hell I'm thinking about. Uh, I still don't, but at least it helps me. So that, that was sort of one. The second one, which also I mentioned in my book, is two years into my career, or very early in my career, less than a year in my career. I thought I was doing really well, but a boss of mine told me that while I was doing very well at my job, I was not going to be very successful because this job required not just that. It required relationships. It required an understanding of culture. And because I'd grown up in India, not gone to undergraduate school in the United States, and gone to a very, very academic school without football teams and a whole bunch of other things like the University of Chicago, I was sort of like a fish out of water. So he basically said, like, dial down this Indian stuff and get a little bit more about American culture. Right. And he not only said that, but he basically said, and I will help you if you would like me to, because he says, that's how you will succeed. He says, right now you're really good at this part, but you have to be also good at this part. 
And the only reason you're not good at this part is nothing wrong with you. It's just you grew up in a different country. And we appreciate that. It can talk about that. But you need to be aware that you're working in America. You're not working in India, right? And these are the things we Americans expect you to know. So he got me into a major club that he was a member of. He had his kids take me to football and baseball. I mean, he took them to like homecoming games. He got me tickets for every major event and had me write reviews on it. And he says, now you will be very successful because you can fit and speak and then people can see your skill set versus the fact that you don't know baseball. So things like that. A third key point was really when I was working in account service and my client, who eventually ended up becoming the chief executive officer of Heinz Corporation, but at that time he was a middle-level person, relatively senior, not middle-level, who basically told my boss that he didn't believe in television advertising for his brands or for print and he wanted to do direct marketing. And I didn't know any direct marketing, so I told my boss, not interested. My boss said, if your client wants to learn direct marketing, you better figure out direct marketing. And we had a direct marketing group that we had brought in to help on Marlboro and other brands that were not going to have advertising. So I learned about it, and as a result of it, I began to get very interested in online marketing, and that's how I launched the interactive marketing group. So the fact that the clients said they didn't believe in television, forcing me to do something else, and then seeing that a lot of the direct marketing didn't work for certain types of products, then I came across online, and that launched my digital career 25 years ago. So that was another key point. And in part of that, I launched a new company uh, with colleagues of mine, which is we took the name off the door. Leo Burnett basically has this famous talk, which is never take the name off the door. I took the name off the door. I moved out of the building. I remain a Leo Burnett employee. And I learned with these gentlemen how to run a company, how to run a real P&L, how to run a real payroll, because every other employee was a non-Leo Burnett employee. We were in Greektown in Chicago, and we grew that company profitably from three of us to about 125 And that attracted the attention of our board. And then we were launching our media companies into freestanding elements. The person who was doing that invited me to come and help him do that and also bring digital capabilities. And that was Starcom and MediaVest and Zenith and Optimedia. And while doing that, I helped build a case that we needed to be more digital. So we started acquiring companies like Digitas and Razorfish. And all of that required a strategy and innovation officer, which is what I became. And then I became the chairman of those companies. And then for the last five, six years, I started working at the group level. So, you know, when you think about the pivots, it was the pivot of getting the job because of the essay. It was basically recognizing that just being good at what you were doing and not understanding society and culture didn't make sense. So that was there. It was basically recognizing that I had to do something different, learn direct marketing, which therefore got me to online marketing, starting with a spinoff of the media companies. And then eventually, basically, because I'd done by which time I'd done digital, creative, media, data, I could then work at the group level. I love every element of that story because it really illustrates how well-rounded you become in the agency world when you're given all these crazy opportunities. And it tells me how, you know, you start focusing on people and the products you're selling to your customers, which was something I wanted to ask about. So I love this mantra you have. Sort of your purpose is to get people to see, think, and feel differently. So- Talk about how through that career trajectory you walked us through, that sort of core purpose of your life came into being and how you're leveraging that philosophy today, both in helping grow the agencies internally from an employee engagement standpoint, but also helping grow the brands of the agencies that you serve to their client base. 
So what I've done is for, for a long time, I began to realize that when I was trying to build the case, whether it was for the interactive marketing group or a lot of other, I had a futures agency called Denu that I launched uh, with other folks, that I always had to convince people to think or see or feel differently because what I was suggesting was not obvious, often new, and sometimes the underlying fundamentals of that was the exact opposite of what they were familiar with. And over time, I learned how to do it. And then I began to realize that, one, it was good for me because I got to do the things I wanted to do. But importantly, the way I did it, they appreciated. And even often, one out of three times, anything I launched didn't work. Okay. And usually, I would be the first person to go and say it wasn't working. And they would basically say, no, 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 no. Take a little bit more time to make sure it doesn't work. And what had happened is because I'd done the see, think, and feel differently and getting them to see, think, feel differently versus me forcing them that this is the only way or the highway, even when those things didn't work out, it was we all made that decision. Because part of when I make a recommendation to do something new, I also show where it can fail, right? And usually I'm the person who first goes in and says, hey, I'm getting signs that this is failing. Now, the reason I do that is for two reasons. One is to get people's help. Maybe, hey, this is a way that you can tell me how they won't fail. But the other is so they know whether I should keep going or not going. Because when you're so close to it, you sometimes don't know whether to jump or stay. And that became sort of a magic portion. And now the way I sort of do it is much more as like an educator. And I work across the world with lots of clients my last four talks were basically with a healthcare like Blue Cross Blue Shield, a major law firm in the South. This has nothing to do with agencies, right? A major financial firm, and then obviously a major client. So the key was, my understanding was that 85 to 90% of everything is a human thing. And 10 to 15% is category specific. I never can understand the category as well as a client or someone who works in the category, right? But I can understand across categories and I can understand trends across humans. So that has become sort of the magic power. I love that. You're speaking to my heart because one of the roles that I play at Samantha here is often coach and sort of where do we need to go next? And to your point, sometimes I fail at that because I don't, I'm not able to convince my brain to not fall in love with the first idea. So yes. the mantra that you've taught me to argue the other side has been challenging and remembering to slow down and bring people into the conversation, right? Yes. You have to bring them down into the conversation, especially when you're trying to make change happen. Because like one of the chapters in my book is called Change Sucks, right? right? And the reason I say that is because whenever you change, you make mistakes, you don't know what you're doing, and the more senior you get, the less likely you want to do it. And that was two reasons. One is because while change sucks, irrelevance is even worse. But I learned what are the components. And to your point, to bring people along, and if you want people to change, just telling them to change, sending out a press release, or threatening them to change doesn't actually work. Okay? It may work for a day. It may work for 50 days, but it, sooner or later, it's not going to work. What does work is reminding them again and again and again, because the first time they don't listen, the second time, third time. The second one is providing incentives, which is, why should I do it? Like, just because you want me to do it doesn't necessarily mean it's good for me or I, you've got to give me some benefit, right? And the third is you've got to provide me with training. You're a truck driver. The truck's going to be automated, so you have to learn how to do software, Okay. 
And your stuff is, if first of all, I don't want to do software. Second, I don't know how to do software. So first, I don't want to change. Second is, I don't know how to do it. And third, I would start at the very bottom of being a software writer while I have a well-paid, many years of experience, truck driver. We don't think about any of that. Oh, this will be, and therefore this will happen. And my whole thing is like, everything is easy, but people get in the way. Let's back up for a minute. Tell me about the book, what inspired you to write it, who you wrote it for. Give me the backstory. Over the years, over the last decade, people used to ask me certain questions and I would answer them. And they said, you know, you should write a book about that. No one has actually given me answers like that. And they seem to be practical. So I said, try it. Right. And they would try it. And they said, hey, this thing works. So I had like real life stuff. And so what I decided to do was write a book, which is really 12 books in one which answered those 12 questions. And each chapter answers one of those 12 questions. So in effect, I then would have 12 different things to advise about, 12 different things to speak about. A person reading the book doesn't have to read all 12. They can select the three or four because most nonfiction business books have only one good chapter. In this particular case, at least you'll find three or four or five, if not more often. So that's how I did it. And then the fact that I got a major publisher to give me an advance convinced my management that, A, I was serious, and B, this actually was going to be good, and this wasn't some fantasy project, because when I was very young, I wanted to be a writer, so they thought, like, okay, this guy has now got this fantasy project that he started, and they've obviously been very supportive of the book and everything going forward. I guess I would say that in the reviews that I read of the book, people say that it is a practical guide, and you tell these stories of how you applied these principles in your work, but the theme through it all is this idea of sort of the soul of business. So I was hoping that you would talk more about why you sort of landed on that word and how that comes to life in all of those 12 chapters, because it's really about people. Yeah. So while I had those 12 questions, what I began to realize there was a theme that connected all those questions, and the theme was a question of really balance, which is... How do I, depending on where I am, what I am facing, how do I make decisions that are right with the math of the business, right? Which is the data, the spreadsheet, the P&L. But at the same stage, how do I make decisions with the purpose, the values, the culture, the talent of the business? In the modern world, companies were tilting more and more because we're in this data-driven age right? And we're besotted with data and numbers and powerful and data is the new oil or whatever. That companies were making decisions that were very data-driven, very short-term and very people-unfriendly. I'm not saying everybody, but the tilting was more and more there. And my belief was, if that was good for people or good for business, that would be okay. But the research basically showed that not only was it not good for the people or society, but the businesses that tilted that way, like a Wells Fargo, like most recently a Boeing, right, ended up basically destroying their companies. Right. On the other hand, companies that tilted only towards story and culture and, you know, wonderful stuff, those companies are like WeWork, which are like fantasy companies, like completely built on delusion. On the other hand, if you looked in every category, companies that did well, that had high employee retention, high customer satisfaction, Because if you don't have high employee retention and satisfaction, it's very hard to get successful customers because customers deal with people in a company. Customers don't deal with bricks and mortar of a company, right? And so what happens is those companies like 
Adobe in technology, more recently Microsoft, ever since Satya Nadella has basically come back, right? Southwest Airlines, Costco. You can go up category after category. Those companies were doing the right thing by their people, think and balancing the two. They were not like just only thinking about the story. And that's how I connected this. So therefore you have this thing about how do you marry math and meaning? How do you manage the darker side of brighter screens? And so the darker side of brighter screens was really how do you manage distributed workplaces, which as you can imagine has become very popular at this particular time. I think what inspired me about this idea of the story versus the spreadsheet is coming up in a brand or a customer experience agency, you never go into a client without talking about their history and their values and their purpose and then working with their employees, right, to roll out the customer-focused brand strategy. But I would love to hear your background on in the diversity of agencies that you worked with. How did you tap into the story of the agency and the leadership that lived there and the feel, right, and then translate that into sort of the service that you delivered your customers? So the first is, remember, I was given a PhD in this because I worked at the Leo Burnett Company. And the Leo Burnett Company is where I worked for the first 12 to 14 years, and I'm still in the Leo Burnett building. And in the Leo Burnett Company, they have three key things. They have a history. So when you come in, the first thing that they do is they show in your first three hours of what I call indoctrination. They indoctrinate you by basically doing a few things, which I still remember. They show you a video of the founder, Leo Burnett, at his last thing called The Breakfast. And he basically says, here's what I believe. So you began to see, okay, there was a real guy, and this is what he really believed in grainy black and white footage in the late 1960s. Okay, that was number one. Number two, they basically have, so if you think about a religious order, a religious order tends to basically have the equivalent of a Bible or a Quran or a Talmud or whatever it is here. So here we have the sayings of Leo. And one of the sayings of Leo is when you reach for the stars, right, you may not get one, but you won't come up with a handful of mud either, which is number one. The other one was, and remember, this was primarily in those days a male-oriented company. Never forget the lonely man, which has now been turned to never forget the lonely person, which is when you go out and you pitch the client, there are hundreds of people, or hundreds, many people who work for you through the night who never get to go to the client, who are doing all these kinds of things. So they had these like particular, you know, sayings. So there were these stories. So that was the first thing. We had the Bible. The second thing, we had what is known as rituals. And you had a ritual called the Leo Burnett Breakfast, where everybody got together for breakfast in December, and they literally served breakfast. They were like multimedia shows. And at the breakfast, you got apprised by what had happened. You saw all the best work. All the various leaders talked to you. And then you got a bonus check, and every single person got a bonus check. And that bonus check was between 15 to 25% of your entire year's salary. So you've got stories, and you've got rituals, and then you've got artifacts. And artifacts is we basically had an apple. So whenever you got to any office at the day of that company, the first day when you left, besides seeing this film, you were given a bunch of pencils and you were given a bunch of apples. So the apples were because when Leo Burnett started the company, it was during the Great Depression. And he started the company in the Prudential Building. Well, first he started at a hotel and then he moved to the uh, So he had his assistant give out at the front desk. They had apples. So when you came in, they gave you apples. 
And so there were these headlines that says, Leo Burnett will soon be selling apples on the street versus giving them away, right? And so they kept a tab of how many apples, and I forget, but the year that I was there, they basically were giving out 350,000 apples a year. And so they were saying, hey, we're giving away hundreds of thousands of apples, and this is the ritual, the apples. So every desk at Burnett, in any office on every floor, would have apples. That was one ritual. He used a particular pencil, it was a special type of pencil. So you use the Leobinet pencil. And then the hands reaching for the star became our crucifix. Okay. And that was everywhere else. So that's how I began to learn that you needed to have rituals, you needed to have artifacts, and you needed to have stories. And in effect, in every single company, that's what we did. We basically had storytelling, even though they were a young company, we made stories, we created artifacts. I just gave a recommendation for one of the people who used to work with me 20 years ago. I love that, Rashad. But I think what you're describing is in agency world, those rituals and those artifacts and those stories, at least for me, they bring so much energy. And I don't often see that as much on the client side. And so one of my dreams is to be able to bring that agency culture to life in the client dynamic. And part of the idea that I have is that in agency world, you learn to fight it out, right? You have to build this intense trust with your coworker and you call it dealing with the turd on the table. (laughs) You have to talk about that a little bit and like explain what that looks like agency side and client side and how we can bring some of what the luxury we've had growing up in agency business into the client's world. So one of the things on the turn of the table and the importance of that is that was actually a real story, which you said in the book. And the person who I was dealing with was the chief executive officer of Adobe at that time. And we were talking about it. Basically, I said, hey, look, we're, we're not really talking about what's important. Well, both of us are staring at the table and we think there's a brown thing in there that's brownie, that's brown and moist, and it's a brownie. But you and I know it's a piece of shit. So <laughs> shall we talk about it? It's right. a turd, right? It's not Let's a brownie. Call it out, yep. Right? And that helps the conversation. That also means you have to be truth to power. you got to tell people where they stand and what they think. You know, it was very interesting when this gentleman who basically said, hey, listen, clown, you're really good at media, but you don't understand culture. That was a turd on the table. He told me truth, Right. But he basically told me truth, and then he told me how to fix it. Telling somebody, hey, you suck, doesn't help. You suck. You should not suck. Here is what you need to do, and here is how I will help you do it. That is fine. What's unfortunately happened in today's environment, a lot of people, when they read the book, and this is that particular story, and this is particularly interesting, a lot of people who were both of color and women called me and said, we want to talk to you. So I said, okay. And they said, I wish people would deal with us today like this, right? Because they said people have become so sensitive about what they say that no one is giving us any feedback, right? And I said, look, this wasn't racial profiling feedback. It was basically you're working in this culture. Here's what you need to do. Here's how I'm going to do it. Nothing's wrong with your culture. Nothing's wrong with you. But you don't have all the skills necessary. And the reality of it is we're living in, in our the advertising world. You better understand some of these soft skills. You just can't run around with your math and spreadsheet stuff, right, which is, which is a key thing. But what has happened is our ability to basically tell truth to clients is very, very important because we, A, bring an outside perspective. Because every category, and I've said this again and again, amazing companies, P&G, amazing company, right, fantastic company. But when you think about all the products and services they have, there is one commonality. They remove dirt. So at heart, P&G is a dirt removal company. They remove dirt from your kids' butts, from your butt, from your <laughs> teeth, from your clothes, from your house. 
It's dirt removal. People don't justify or define themselves as dirt removal. So when you say, I got all these categories and all this data, but I said, you're looking at the entire world through dirt removal. I don't (laughs) define my life through dirt removal. You need outside perspectives, which is number one. The other reason you need outside perspectives is the worst that can happen to us is we can be taken off the account. If you're inside the company, you can lose your job, you know, inside a client company. So one of the things is some of the reasons, you know, some companies have basically taken this in-housing stuff, which I've been trying to think the case for in-housing. And there is a certain case for in-housing in certain areas and in certain industries. But the best way I've talked about it is if you happen to have a company that's almost completely online and you're doing primarily online marketing, it probably makes sense to take a lot of it in-house. That's number one. Number two, there is something completely new and you don't know what the hell is happening and you don't know who to trust. It probably makes sense initially to take some part of it in-house so you can understand what the rules of engagement are. Outside of those two, it makes zero sense, right? <laughs> and those two probably account for 5 to 10% of the cases that often happens. There's two reasons why you should never, ever do that, right? And it's the exact opposite of what clients actually believe. One is they believe that it's a way to cut costs. And the other way is they believe it's a way to get speed. Outside of the fact that they're losing outside perspective and maybe they don't care about outside perspective, that's perfectly honest. Let me ask you this. Every single client who's brought their agency in-house, what exactly are they dealing with right now? If they have the agency outside, they could give us 30-day notice, ask us to furlough people. They don't have to do one-year severance, right? Second is they're moving into a world that's different. All those skill sets don't matter anymore. Now they have to hire agencies again, and they've got the severance costs, and the world has changed, and these people aren't telling them the truth. That's the big problem. And I've always told people this. You know, I very nicely, gently tell our clients, hey, listen, if I'm telling you what you want a year, two problems. One is I'm unnecessary, but B, that means you don't think I can add value. So guess what? If you don't think I can add value, then we're going to basically be negotiating about price. And client, I don't love you more than I love my kids. I need to educate my kids. Thank you. Bye-bye. Exactly. I want to do a big pivot because I don't want to run out of time to talk about your feelings on growth and change. So you mentioned some mantras earlier, change sucks, but irrelevance is worse. Build the opposite of what you believe. I love this one. You say there's only two ways to change, upgrade the people or get new people. And you say it's easier to start something than stop it. So what do you say to the organizations or clients you work with out there that are sort of stuck in status quo? Maybe they are a leader in their market. Maybe they're super profitable. How do you keep them ahead of the change that's coming? So there are a few ways. One of them is to think about where the world is going. So the last chapter in the book, it's not really the last chapter, it's a summary, but I call it thriving in the third connected age. But I introduce new concepts, so it's not really a conclusion. I basically say, here's what the future looks like. And then I pick the best parts of the 12 chapters to show how it can work, right? And in that, I call it the connected ages. So the first thing is to try to understand where the world is going. And my basic belief is, We are moving to the third connected age. The first connected age was built around search and built around search was one clearly an e-commerce, right? So that's the Amazon Google era. The second was social and mobile. So it's still Amazon and Google era, but now you basically happen to have Facebook and Twitter and all of that, and you have Apple. And I remind people that Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Google are four of the five most valuable companies in America. One company basically reinvented itself 
So when companies, when they say big companies can't reinvent, I said, here's a big company that reinvented itself, which happens to be one of the five most valuable companies. It's called Microsoft. And Microsoft and Obama did nothing. They were focused on their past. It was Windows, Windows, Windows. It was everybody outside sucks, mm -hmm. right? With stack ranking and math and their stock price and Obama's reign was flat. Satya Nadella came on four or five years ago. Their stock price has gone up, I think, between three times to four times in those five years. What are the things he did? He says, we have a know-it-all mindset. We need to have a growth mindset. He gave everybody Carol Dwight's book, Growth Mindset. So that was sort of one. He basically said, we should focus on professionals and not on consumers or on advertising and stuff like that. So outside of Xbox, almost everything that they basically do is focused on professionals. Of course, you can have Office and 365, but they're much more of an enterprise-based company. The third is we shouldn't look at the future through Windows, so there's no Windows division anymore, right? There's, Windows is completely basically gone. It's all over. And he redefined and reinvented the company by basically saying, why is it that we're carrying? Who said we can't do any of this? Who said? Like, eventually, remember I said, like, why can't we change the name from Leo Burnett Interactive to something else? Why can't we leave the building? Like, we surely cannot basically be sitting there because, you know, my whole thing is the world keeps changing. So often when people say our founding fathers said, I said, yeah, but our founding fathers had slaves. Our founding fathers didn't have electricity. Our founding fathers didn't exist. China existed. What are you talking about? Help me understand, Rashad, how do you leverage the history of a company with all those cultural artifacts to launch something new, but also cut off what doesn't work anymore? The way you do it is you basically do what I call a semi-permeable membrane. So the semi-permeable membrane is how do you keep the good things in and the bad things out? What you tend to first do is the best you can try to put everything in there and start sort of filtering and straining stuff. But often there's another model that I also run, which I may have said in the book, which is you know, Andy Grove of Intel basically said only the paranoid will survive. And that was fine for a particular era, but after he passed away, his legacy eventually ended up being bad for Intel because they missed everything. They missed mobile. They missed because they thought everybody else was the enemy. And they and Windows were basically going Windows, Intel, 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 and then they had Winter instead of Windows. But what was very important is I truly believe that instead of only the paranoid will survive, only the schizophrenic will thrive. Oh, I love that. And that basically means that most companies should run two models. They should run a model optimized for today, and they should run a model optimized for tomorrow. And I often learned, and that's how I eventually built all these new companies. I said, I understand what Leo Burnett or Starcom or whatever needs to do, but that is for today. We need to also do this. So let me be the canary in the coal mine. I said, some things I do may not work. Some things might work. If they don't work, we learn something. If they work, we'll have something. I mean, it'll be all kinds of things. So those are the things to basically do. One of the things that I strongly suggest when working with clients is when you bring them case studies and stories and things like that, don't bring it to them about their category because of two reasons. What is they know their category better than anybody outside, which I continue to believe. If you work in a business, you know it better than any advisor, strategist, or anything, just because you lived and worked in it. But and we bring in the outside perspective. Obviously, we're supposed to know it well enough so we aren't jerks, right? But the second and more important thing is this, which is I always talk about other categories because it doesn't make them defensive. So my whole stuff is I say, are there any parallels? And I let them draw the parallels. And they said, wait, if that could happen there, what could it happen here? 
Because whenever you tell somebody that you are giving them advice to change, they go into this defensive mode, which is who the hell are you? What do you know? And why are you telling me this? One of the things I suggest to people is a three eyes meetings. I basically did what I was called the three eyes. I first gave them inspiration. That was the outside person talking about something different. Then the next thing I did was I brought them ideas. Hey, based on what this has happened, here are some ideas. And then we would have a work session, which was imagination. How could we craft something together? What the three eyes meeting is, is this really like you repitching your business every six months. And we would do it like a new business pitch. We would have little artifacts, we'd have room, we'd have a flower, but it was great. And we had go, well, then they would say, like, can we have dinner attached to it or everything else? And then it became a session. Those are some of the tricks that I used to do. And those are all copyable by everybody. I love that. Yeah, that's definitely a ritual I could see pulling through into the culture. How did you not earn the brand of standing up to many new things while at the same time keeping a team focused on continuing the change management that you've talked about is critical to the change you're trying to create? As you know, there's an entire chapter in my book on talent, because I truly believe that companies that win are not different than sports teams, which is a sports team that happens to have a disproportionate share of talent passionately aligned against a common outcome will always win versus other, right? So if you have a disproportionate share of talent, which is one thing you need, you need passionate alignment. So you don't you don't want this disproportionate talent fighting with each other. Like sometimes, you know, what happened on the Lakers or other places, right? And third is a, aligned against a common outcome. And as a leader, your job is basically to make those three things happen. So the first one is to identify, cultivate, irrigate, help the best talent. Create a culture where they feel safe and can speak up and everything else. Make sure that even though they speak up and can disagree, that everyone knows what the goal is. And then they can be passionate about it, but they eventually have to think about the goal and not their own perspective. If you do that, those teams always win, as the Bulls did in the 90s, as New England did, as all these. That's the key thing. But they always had disproportionate share of talent. So what I would basically do is I didn't do much. I would set the case to why this was, and different people did it. So what would happen is when we were trying to do some of these new experiments, I had a person very passionate, and it was usually someone who built me a case, and I realized that I would lose them. So somebody wanted to do gaming. So I said, okay, start a gaming unit, but it's only you with one other person. And if you can build it, I'll see what it is. So it wasn't me doing it with someone else. And it was a way to keep them connected. And then if I had three of them, we I would connect them. And I said, this is the future of entertainment, gaming, music, and something else. And I would have all of them work together so it would look bigger, which is sort of the storytelling. This so speaks to your leadership style, and I love it. I said, I, I say I've built my career on the backs of other passionate people, right? And so if you can fuel that passion, and I love this concept you talk about that anything new you want to stand up, it's about the first 20 people. Yeah, it, it's always that, because what tends to basically happen is companies' cultures are formed by the first 10 to 20 people. Also, each time you add a person for the first 10 to 20, you're adding 10% or 5% of your company. Right. You know, today, when publicist hires 5% of the company, to, to a great extent, is basically hiring 4,000 people, which is very different than one person is 5% of your company. Right. Well, I know you've written about career planning. What do you look for in talent? So when you were hiring and you knew what, where you wanted to take the agency, what were the qualities you were looking for? And like, how are some of the best agencies today doing it well? There are a lot of different 
things that people have said and I've studied what other companies have looked at. These are the ones that have sort of worked for me. So number one, all three are equally important. There are three of them, but they're all equally important. One is what I call intellectual curiosity. So these are people who are hungry to learn, right? So they're learners. They don't have to have like ultimate high IQs and stuff like that, but they, they have some IQ, but they have the ability to learn. They're constantly asking questions, learning, looking at different ways. And because our business is constantly changing, the ability to learn, improve yourself, think in different ways for innovation is important. That's number one. The second one is that they have very good communication skills. So because my whole stuff is you have to write, speak, communicate, or can be trained to have good communication skills. I had terrible communication skills, but I had the potential of that. So that was basically the second one. And the third one is they don't take themselves so seriously and they have a sense of empathy, which means they can connect with other people, right? So to me, it is there are three Cs, cogitation, which is can you learn, communication, can you express yourself, and connection, can you deal with people and relationships? I love that. That's inspiring. Yeah, we definitely need to, you know, build those things into our hiring strategy. I know learning is one of your core beliefs. You talk about it extensively. Share a little bit of that thinking. So one of the chapters of my book is how to upgrade your mental operating system. And this was something that I began to realize is that in America and all over the world, people were fixated on food and fixated on exercise. And the reason was because it's important for our physical operating system. And our physical operating system is important. You know, we, when we're talking about this right now, it's during COVID-19. If you aren't healthy, it doesn't matter anything else. But what separates us from monkeys is not our stomachs, it's our minds. But we don't spend as much time figuring out what we put in our minds and how we exercise it. So I basically believed in a world that was changing that we had to continue to improve. And so that is why I built this entire chapter on how we could sort of improve. And, you know, the reality of it is that I've been writing new things built on where I've come, but completely new. And this is called what I call the reinvention series, the great reinvention. So I've called this particular era of COVID-19. I've stolen Bill Gates's line about we're going to enter a semi-normal era versus a new normal era, semi-normal. But my whole thing is, therefore, what does it mean? So I've had these four things, which is, hey, we're going to have constrained growth. We have to address fragility because people are feeling fragile. We have to basically sculpt resilience into both society, companies, and people. And my most recent one, which has become very, very popular, is Resurrect Now, which is how to use the next month of May to rethink your business, to rethink, to do what is known, I, I call a shock and resilience audit on your company and on your clients' companies, to think about how people are going to change, what they will do more of, less of, and what to expect. And then how to start with a fresh sheet of paper about a completely new way of looking at it. And so how did I do that? So when I wrote this piece, which has become very popular in the last three days, people basically said, how did you do this? Because, yeah, some of this is like linked, but this is all new stuff. And my whole thing is because I keep learning. And so I keep telling people, hey, spend an hour a day learning, try to do one new thing every day. And then, of course, the good old chestnut think the exact opposite of what you believe. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I had a boss that said creativity is the art of seeing connections. And I think learning allows you to do that and think in new ways and offer those insights to the universe. Exactly. Exactly. 
I need to understand kind of where you would leave us. So obviously, my listeners are marketers from the brand and the agency side, you know, super inspired by your career background. What are sort of the biggest tips or pieces of advice you have for us to think about as we go about and take this brain candy into our day to day? So what I would do besides suggesting that if you can go buy my book. Yes, of course. (laughs) My book is basically an operating manual for this world and you can read it in any order. So choose any chapter you like. But besides that, here are the three key things I would leave people with. The first one is recognize that everybody is a leader, that whether you're an assistant account executive, the account director, a CEO, everybody is a leader and You need to constantly practice and ask yourself, are you building skills to be capable? Are you increasingly being fact-based and trustworthy, therefore for integrity? Are you thinking about the other person, which is empathy? Do you often say that you are wrong, which is vulnerability? And when people leave you, do they feel energized and uplifted or down, which is are you inspiring? And so my basic belief is those are the five key things. Every day you must ask yourself, capability, integrity, empathy, vulnerability, and inspiration. That's number one. Number two is make sure that you also realize that you are human. Therefore, most of the time, you don't know what the hell you're doing. So part of what people in our industry and other industries do is our industry is not easy because we work with clients and clients sometimes yell at us. We work with creative ideas. Many of them sometimes don't work. We have deadlines. The world changes, right? You have to basically obviously take things seriously, get better, correct your mistakes, But you have to be kind to yourself, right? So if you can't be kind to yourself and you become internally corrosive and toxic, that doesn't actually sort of work, which is very important. And third is make sure you realize that you should be patient with your career, which is most careers last for 50 years. If you like your job 70% of the time, it's a fantastic job. If you just dislike it 20 to 25%, it's okay. And if that 20 to 25% that you don't dislike, as long as it doesn't have these two characteristics, one is that you are doing something unethical or being asked to do something unethical, which is number one, right? And number two, it is physically dangerous. But most of the reason we don't like jobs is sometimes our bosses yell at us, our clients don't like us. Sometimes we got too much pressure, we got too much. That's why we get paid. I remind people, right? So you have to be careful because most you have a 50-year history. So make career decisions every three to five years, not every three to six months. So be patient, be kind, which is very, very important to to, so, so this world goes. Well, those are words of wisdom I will live by. I am going to keep all my notes from our conversation. And again, I encourage everyone to not only go buy your book, but to read your articles, listen to your podcast. We will put all of those out online for everybody. And I just feel honored that you spent an hour with me, Rashad. I really appreciate it. Well, for me, it's a privilege because I get to meet you or or at least talk with you. And hopefully we'll have a once, you know, we can move around. We can have a drink somewhere. I would love that. I would love to come to Chicago. Which would be great. (laughs) Totally. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time. We'll talk again soon. Rashad Tabakawala, friends, leaving us with some really inspiring words of wisdom on managing culture and change, leading people, and finding the right talent. I have to share that I was both honored and a little shocked Rashad agreed to talk to me. His book, On the Soul of Business, truly is a series of inspiring chapters about leading organizations. I encourage you to find it on Amazon by searching Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data by Rashad Tabakawala. 
I would also encourage you to visit RashadTabakawala.com where you can learn more about his writing, speaking, and advising engagements. We'll link to Rashad's work on marketingsweats.com where you can download all of our season two episodes and connect with me, Misty Dykema, to learn more about our show and our agency, Samantle. Please give us a review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, check back regularly for more real life accounts from hardworking marketing pros. We'll talk soon. Bye.